You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Halloween is a holiday that is based around people getting to dress up and become something or someone else. Sometimes that means dressing up as a character from your favorite movie, show, or video game. Sometimes that means taking on and dressing up as an entirely new persona and becoming someone or something that you perhaps wish was closer to the truer you. On October 31st, 2020, in Quebec City, Quebec, Canada, a man dressed up in a kimono and took to the streets in a much more sinister way. He would kill two innocent bystanders at random, and he would injure five others, and would later say that it wasn't him at all that committed those murders. No, in fact, he would blame, quote, Bad Carl for committing the indecencies that were committed on that night. Did this man and his defense team successfully prove that he was not criminally responsible for the things that he did? Hello, and welcome to episode 51 of Gone But Never Forgotten, Carl Girard and the Quebec City Stabbings. And welcome back to GBNF. In this episode, we start the second half of our trek to 100 episodes. This week, we look at another case of Halloween gone wrong. And another case where a criminal and their legal team try to prove that the person who committed the murders and assaults was not criminally responsible for the things that they had done. Mental health is obviously a real thing, and we do advocate for that. However, it is very much a debate in this country as to whether someone should be able to plead not guilty because of those mental illnesses. Let's jump into the case and look at the killer, the victims, what happened, and the fallout from the case. Halloween in 2020 in Quebec was unlike almost any other Halloween that anyone had ever experienced. In Quebec, much like most of Canada, Halloween was not being observed with the usual revelry and trick-or-treating that most of us are used to. Halloween was on a Saturday, but it fell within the COVID lockdown era in Quebec. People were not supposed to be out and about on the streets, people were not supposed to be dressed up, and people were not supposed to be in harm's way. This Halloween would tragically become even less like Halloween usually is in Quebec City as Carl Girard, a 24-year-old man from St. Therese, Quebec, on Montreal's North Shore, 
would go on a killing and assault spree in the old Quebec neighborhood near the Parliament buildings. At approximately 10 p.m., Carl would stop and park his car in front of the Chateau Frontenac. The Fairmont Le Chateau Frontenac is a historic hotel that is situated in Old Quebec in the historic district. It was built by the Canadian Pacific Railway Company and opened in 1893. It has 18 floors and it was one of the first completed Grand Railway hotels in Canada. It was named as a National Historic Site in 1981. Carl would later explain that his original plan was to enter Le Chateau Frontenac and attack people inside. However, when he approached the doors, he found the doors were locked. He would then leave the property. Carl climbed out of his car dressed in a way that was certainly abnormal, although because it was Halloween, it likely wasn't as unusual as it would have been on any other day. He was wearing black jogging pants, black leather boots, a short sleeve kimono, and a black mask. He was also wielding a 76.9 centimeter, or 30 inch, katana. That katana would be the assault and murder weapon on that day. Carl came across the man that would be the first victim in the all-out assault in front of Le Chateau Frontenac as he left his car running parked on the roadway. Carl would approach his first victim at this time, right in front of the hotel. That victim would be Rémy Bélanger. Rémy said that he was listening to a podcast and taking pictures of Le Chateau Frontenac when he saw Carl coming towards him. He said that as he approached, Carl lifted the katana as if he was going to attack, but Rémy thought that this was a man in costume and that it was some kind of Halloween prank. He would quickly find out that this was far from a prank. This poor man, seriously, Rémy said that he was first hit in the head and he fell to the ground. He then remembers being slashed on his back and his hand and even remembers picking one of his fingers up off the ground that was severed in the attack. Miraculously, Raimi would manage to run away from Carl, bleeding profusely, and he eventually made it to the doors into Le Chateau Frontenac. At first, staff would also believe that this was a Halloween prank, but quickly realized that this was far more serious and called for an ambulance. Raimi would wind up suffering from many wounds to his skull, his neck, his chest, his arms, his hands, and his hip. The loss of his finger was incredibly traumatizing for Remy because he made his living as a cellist and he believed that he may in fact never play music again. Carl was just getting started. Around this time, Francois Duchesne, a 56-year-old man and the communications and marketing director for the Musée National des Beaux-Arts du Québec, headed out for an evening jog. Witnesses would explain that Carl ran towards Francois and he would attack Francois. Witnesses said that Francois would scream out, Oh, come on, before he would fall to the ground after being struck by Carl. Carl would run the katana straight through Francois right there on the sidewalk of Rue du Trésor, directly across from the street from Carl's parked black Saturn and behind Old Quebec's Anglican Cathedral. Francois would succumb to his injuries later that night. It's so sad. Francois was simply heading out for a quick jog, one of the few reasons that you were allowed to leave the house during lockdown, and he met his untimely and brutal demise at the hands of Carl, a man who was just starting this rampage that would create many more crime scenes, 
and many more victims. This is one of those stories that literally scares the hell out of me. We see it so often in the cases that we cover. Just an innocent person in the wrong place at the wrong time and in the path of someone who was looking to kill and didn't care who the victims were. From there, Carl would come across his third and fourth victims. Pierre Lagrevol, a professional cook, and Lisa Mahmoud, a hairdresser. The pair were walking along Rue de Baud when they saw Carl approaching them. The two thought that Carl was dressed for Halloween because of the medieval appearance of his clothing. Lisa would even say that she remembered smiling at Carl as he approached them. Carl would attack Pierre first from behind, slashing at his head with the katana. Both realized quickly that this was much more serious than they had first thought when the man struck Pierre again, this time on his shoulder. At this point, in defense of Pierre, Lisa would push Carl away and yell at him, asking what he was doing. Carl would then react by attacking Lisa as well. Pierre tried to stop the man as well, but he said that the man was not a novice with this katana. Each swing was precise, planned, and not random at all. For such a large sword, the man was incredibly precise. Pierre would say that one of the most startling things was that Carl seemed calm, confident, and moved with a purpose. He was incredibly aware and in control of every single move that he made. Luckily for Pierre and Lisa, Carl would flee the scene. However, Suzanne Claremont was going to be Carl's next victim, and she would sadly not be so lucky. Suzanne was a 61-year-old woman, and she stepped outside of her home just before 10.40 p.m. on Rue de Rampart for a cigarette after finishing up dinner with her husband, Jacques Fortin, just moments before. Jacques had stayed in to do the dishes. While Jacques was doing the dishes, he heard their dog start to bark and howl loudly and wildly, and he went outside to investigate. He could not be prepared for what he would find. Suzanne was lying on the sidewalk by their doorstep, and she was bleeding a lot. Her face had been lacerated by the katana. One of Jacques and Suzanne's neighbors was quickly on the scene, and he was an emergency room doctor. He tried to perform CPR and do anything that he could to help Suzanne, but she had lost too much blood, and she sadly passed away of her injuries at the scene. Oh, wow. I... Can't even imagine. Suzanne had literally just finished her dinner with her husband, stepped out for what would be a few minutes, much like Francois, and she wound up in the direct path of this fucking asshat, and she lost her life for it. Like you said earlier, completely random and absolutely heartbreaking. And Jacques, I don't think that you can ever prepare yourself for what he found when he opened that door. And I also don't think that that is something that you ever recover from. All of these people no doubt suffer every day of their lives. How on earth do you recover from any of this, even if you are lucky enough to still be alive? Yeah, you're certainly right. I don't think that you ever do recover from it. It doesn't matter if you're Jacques and you walk out the door or if you're one of these victims who didn't lose their lives. This is not something that you ever forget or completely move on from. The last victims would be Gilberto, Lucio, Porras, Alvarado, and three of his friends. The four of them had gone out to eat and to take some pictures. 
They were rocking down Rue de Rampal when they saw Carl coming towards them, Katana in hand. One of the four, names of some of the group have been withheld because they were minors at the time, noticed that the blade glistened in the light from the street lamp and realized that the sword was very likely real. Because he felt threatened, Gilberto pulled out a pellet gun that he was carrying as a part of his Halloween costume, but he did not have time to fire it off. Carl swung the katana, said, Happy Halloween, and struck Gilberto in the head. The group of friends managed to run away from Carl, but he did chase after one of the friends who managed to get away at a gas station and away from Carl. Thankfully, all that was left for Carl after this attack was to be on the run and for the police to fan out and try to find him and capture him before he did any more damage. As far as the police go, at 10.20pm they would receive the first 911 calls and callers would say that there was a man running around in old Quebec dressed in medieval clothing and wielding a gun. Uh oh. I feel like that minor difference was not a good thing. Yeah, I would assume that there are differences between how police would react to a call of a gun versus a call of a sword, for sure. I would think that tactically, there would be some differences in how the police would respond. Thankfully, though, they had a fairly decent description, but you would be hoping that nobody else was walking around in medieval clothing for Halloween. That's for sure. Perhaps in many ways, it was a lucky thing that this was not a full-fledged Halloween with everyone out on the streets. By 1157, the police certainly had a better idea of what they were looking for, but by then, it seems that most of the carnage had been completed. The police would post a bulletin on social media that told the public that they were looking for a man who had multiple victims using a knife. So, at this point, it would seem that at the very least, they knew that Carl had a blade, if not a gun. A second tweet would follow quickly after that first one, and the police appealed to the public in all of Quebec City to stay inside of their homes. The tweet would also explicitly tell people to avoid the National Assembly area in Old Quebec. Less than an hour later, around 12.45 a.m., Carl was intercepted by officers from the Port de Quebec. A port officer who was patrolling the old port spotted Carl and called it in saying that he believed he had a sighting of the suspect. Carl would be apprehended near Espace Quatre-Centième. When he was arrested, he had the katana in his possession. He would then be taken to the hospital and treated for hypothermia. At 1.33 a.m., the police would notify the public that the suspect was in custody, but they reiterated that the public needed to stay safe. At this point, they were unaware of whether Carl had acted alone or not. That makes sense. The sheer area that he covered in such a short time causing this chaos would probably give them pause as well. Unsure if one man could have caused all of the crimes on his own. That would certainly be a factor, not to mention that the world, and I would venture to say Quebec within Canada probably the most, is and was heightened in terms of worrying about terrorism domestically and from abroad. By 4.20 a.m., the police would notify the public that they had the situation under control and they felt that the suspect that they had apprehended did not have any accomplices. 
They believed that Carl had acted only on his own personal motivations and that he did not have ties to anyone else or any terrorist groups. A collective sigh of relief in that regard, I'm sure. They were relatively certain that the spree was over because they had Carl in custody. However, the work was just beginning. No kidding. Police would encourage the public to stay home on Sunday morning as they started the long investigation. Police taped off 25 different crime scenes in their search for evidence and their hunt to try and track down what happened, how it happened, and why it happened. At 9.30 a.m. the next morning, the police released a little bit more information to the public to try and calm their nerves a little bit, if that was possible. They told the public that they believed that the entire attack was premeditated and that the victims were all completely random. I don't know how safe that would actually make you feel. Well, I agree, but I think that that combined with the fact that the assaults had stopped and the police had said that they believed that Carl had acted alone would make you feel at least a little bit safer, in this situation at least. Police Chief Robert Pigeon said that they believed that the man in custody had come to the Capitol with the intention of causing as much chaos and causing as much damage as possible. Around noon, police were at Carl's home in Saint-Thérèse, a suburb north of Montreal. At 1 p.m., police confirmed that Francois Duchesne and Suzanne Clermont were the two victims who had succumbed to their injuries. As mentioned, Francois was the director of communications and marketing for the National Museum of Fine Arts of Quebec, and the entire staff there expressed their remorse and sadness at the loss of Francois. Francois was beloved by everyone that ever came into contact with him. It was said that he absolutely loved Quebec City and involved himself in the community in every way possible. One of Francois' sisters, Mary Jo, said that her brother was a lovely person and that she had just spoken to him hours before his death. He was her best friend. The family would all convene in Quebec for a special ceremony that was put together for Francois in spite of COVID. The travels were tough, as a lot of family was in France. Suzanne was a hairdresser, and she was well regarded by everyone that knew her. Her sister-in-law, Marie-Claude Veilleux, perhaps said it best in court when she spoke to Carl with her impact statement while her back was turned to him. She said that her sister-in-law had been a generous, loving, and bubbly person who enjoyed life and had lived the kind of life that Carl wanted, but never had and never would have. Suzanne's brother remembered his sister as an incredible human being, and he said that she had lived in and thrived in that neighborhood for 25 years. A friend of Suzanne's would say, quote, Suzanne was an extraordinary, adorable woman. She was always in a good mood, smiling and happy. She radiated happiness at all times, you know, unquote. Another friend would say that Suzanne was, quote, always talking to everybody in the neighborhood, unquote, and added that Suzanne was the president of the local citizens group and she organized activities for everyone that lived in the area. These two people were just really great people. Two people who loved Quebec, namely old Quebec, two people who were involved in their community, and two people who were really indispensable people. At a vigil for Suzanne, her husband Jacques would call in with words for everyone gathered. He said, quote, 
I wish you to make the most of the people that you love while they are in this world because life is fragile and from one moment to the next, everything can change. Suzanne, I love you, unquote. That just breaks your heart on so many levels. Yeah, I think that this is about all we can share about these two people who lost their lives, and I want to try and leave the survivors alone as best as we can. I think that we can switch gears now and talk about the asshat at the center of it. After he was treated for his hypothermia, Carl wound up at the police station, of course. He was still dressed in his green hospital gown because he had no other clothes, and frankly, good, leave him in his gown. He didn't deserve any special treatment at this point. An officer questioned him, and the video would later be seen in court. Carl stared blankly in front of himself and didn't answer any of her questions about who he was, where he lived, or anything. He said, quote, you told me I could remain silent, unquote. Officer Danny Gauthier, who bought, brought Carl to the station, said that Carl had remained calm through the arrest, the ordeal at the hospital, and everything that, he, and that he'd done, and that he had cooperated with police. He just had nothing to say, I guess. Shocking that you can do all of these things and then just keep quiet. Police took that as an admission of guilt, actually. However, that's part of the problem as things stand now today. We'll get to that here in a minute. Around 3.40 p.m. on November 1st, Carl Girard was charged with two counts of first-degree murder and five counts of attempted murder. One of the things that police would find out that led them to further believe that first-degree murder was the charge they should go for was that Carl had conversations with a medical professional where he had uttered threats and said that he wanted to kill people with a sword. Even though that conversation had happened, Carl was not known to police prior to the rampage. I'm sure the listeners at home are cringing at those words. A health professional was seemingly aware of those thoughts, but nothing was reported. They are hoping that we are not headed towards an insanity plea here. Investigators felt that they had everything that they needed in this case, and on June 18th of 2021, they filed a direct indictment, which means that the case against Carl would skip the preliminary hearing stage and go directly to trial. He would be scheduled to return to court on September 7th of 2021. The case would wind up facing delays along the way, both procedural and because of COVID, but the case would go to trial eventually and get in front of a judge and jury. And here we go. As part of the trial, Carl would take the stand. While the prosecution was cross-examining him, we got a real look at the defense that Carl was going to take. He said that he was not to blame for the murders and the assaults that took place. He said that it was not he, Carl Girard, who had done those awful things, but rather that, quote, bad Carl had done them, and he had been obsessed with a mission to kill since he was about 18 years old. Bad Carl. Screw this guy. He would add that it was a part of him because at the time of the rampage, he had two Carls within him. So certainly he either had some various serious mental health issues or he was going for that defense to try and keep himself out of prison. While the case went on, people noticed that he would cover his ears at times, many believing that he did so to try and sell the mental health and mental anguish. 
The prosecution, of course, centered on the fact that Carl had been thinking about and planning this attack for a long time. As mentioned, he had talked about planning to kill people with a sword five to six years earlier. I mean, regardless of whether bad Carl or just Carl did these things, he did these things, right? Did Carl really believe that he may get off with this defense? Oh, I certainly think that he did, and I also think his defense team still thinks that they have a case here. More on that in a second. I mean, I guess that we can all take a collective sigh of relief also, because Carl did tell Prosecutor Francois Godin that bad Carl had ceased to exist a few days after he went on his killing spree. Carl would say that he wasn't hearing voices or hallucinating on October 31st of 2020, but rather that bad Carl was just in control and Carl was along for the ride, so to speak. On May 20th, 2022, after five days of deliberations, the jury would come back to the courtroom and find Carl guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and five counts of attempted murder. He would later be sentenced to life in prison with no chance for parole for 25 years. He would also receive concurrent 10-year sentences for the attempted murder convictions. Quebec Superior Court Justice Richard Grenier told Carl, quote, You took the lives of two people and you destroyed the lives of many more, unquote. Even though Carl was found guilty, we all know that that is not where things end in cases like this. As we alluded to earlier, his lawyer, Pierre Gagnon, filed a notice of appeal almost immediately, citing three errors in law that were committed by the trial judge. One of those errors that was cited was that the judge failed to properly tell jurors how they should interpret the silence of Carl during his interrogation. The prosecution and the police felt that his silence was a show of guilt, and they explained it as such. But Carl's lawyer points out that part of Miranda rights in Canada is that you do have that right to remain silent. So, as much as I hate this, he's probably not wrong. I don't know that that would change anything about the verdict, but the paper trail begins in this case, I guess. Pierre would go on to say that his client expected a different outcome in the case, and that, quote, he knows very well that this is a battle that has just ended, but there will be a sequel, unquote. And from everything that we can tell, that's where everything stands presently. It has only been a few months since all of that ended at the trial and Carl was sentenced, but we certainly have not heard the last of this. We've covered in the past the differences, though, even between first and second degree murder charges. If Carl is able to win his appeal and force a new trial or offer to plead down in charges, he can certainly save himself years in prison, and if he is able to present more evidence towards his mental illnesses, who knows what could happen. For our part, I think that it's safe to say that we believe that Carl killed two people and assaulted five more. It doesn't matter who was in charge of the vessel at the time of the murders, whether it was good or bad Carl, if good Carl is even a thing. Yeah, certainly. And also, if bad Carl was a thing, it should be noted that psychiatrists presented at the trial, too, that bad Carl wouldn't just go away without some kind of medication or assistance being provided to Carl. So the fact that he thinks that he is all better or something like that 
It really can't be factually true. Anyways, I think that we'll finish off there. Uh, there will most certainly be an update episode in the future, or at least an update post on social media if it's not worthy of an episode. There are certainly more to come in the case of Carl Girard. So definitely follow us on social media because we're on top of these things when change happens. And after you're done listening to this episode right here, come check us out over on Patreon. We'll be recording our second reaction episode right after we stop recording here, and that's exclusively for patrons of GBNF. Anyone that signs up for Patreon on any of our levels, uh, we will shout you out on the podcast, and of course that will get you access to all of these videos as we make them, and the videos from the past. This exclusive content for us is as low as the price of a cup of coffee per month. Last week's video was about 15 minutes long, and I know that I'm not that much to look at, but there is a lot of FaceTime with the good-looking co-host over here. <laughs> Thanks, Lance. We will see you over on Patreon, and we will see you back here next week on Gone But Never Forgotten.